Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is sufficient. I pray, God, you give me the words to say, Lord, that, that would put this in a, in a place that you desire it to be. And Lord, I pray today that we would just submit to you. Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, today as we look at your word that he would be lifted high. And Lord, I pray that we would leave with just an, the correct understanding of Jesus. And Lord, that it would lead us to worship him. Lord, please empower me and enable me, God, to, to share this, Lord, the way you want. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. This morning we're going to continue in our study of Hebrews. And the message we're going to look at is a superior priesthood, a superior priesthood. When we look at the book of Hebrews, we are dealing with an audience of Hebrews in ancient times that was primarily coming from a Jewish background. These were Jews that had trusted in Christ and, and they were tempted to leave the faith and go back to Judaism because things were getting really hard. Their property had been plundered. They were even facing the potential of martyrdom. And so what do you say and how do you address these Christians who are struggling with endurance, struggling with understanding Jesus? The theme of Hebrews is really Jesus is greater. Jesus is supreme. We've called it the supremacy of Jesus. And he starts out, and to understand the Jewish flair that he gives, he starts right away with things that they would have completely understood. In chapter one, he says, Jesus is greater than the prophets. He immediately says, Jesus is greater than the angels. He goes on and says, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. And he comes now into this section, starting in chapter four, verse 14, all the way into chapter 10, where he's going to demonstrate to them, Jesus is a superior priest. He's a superior priest, a superior priesthood. And for us that do not have the background that these Jews would have had, we've got to really do an effort to try to get into their heads and get into the understanding of how God established the priesthood. Hebrews chapter five, verses one through 10. This morning, we're gonna look at God's design for the priesthood in our outline. God's design for the priesthood. And we're going to see as we look at these four characteristics of God's design, we're gonna see how Jesus fulfills all of them. Let's read Hebrews chapter five. For every he high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Today, we're going to see this design for the high priest. And what he's going to do in verses 1 through 4, he's going to establish what were the patterns? What was necessary in order for the high priest of the Old Testament to stay in their role? Let's look at this. God's design for the high priest. The first one we're gonna see this morning is that he had to be a man. He had to be a man. And, and really here, it's the idea that he had to be a human representative. 
He had to be a human representative. We see in verse one, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It's interesting because when you look at the people of Israel and you discover how the priesthood worked, you see that the people of Israel were needing of a representative or a mediator. When you sinned, you had to take an animal, a spotless animal, and you had to bring it to the tabernacle, later to the temple, and you needed a priest to act as a mediator, a priest to act as a representative, not only of your sins, but of the sins of the country, of the sins of the nation. And they had to be a human representative. Exodus chapter 28 says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. Now notice the next phrase. From among the people of Israel. Now this is important because what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's demonstrating later in verses 5 through 10 how we had to have a human representative because Jesus had to be the God-man, chapter one, demonstrating his deity, chapter two, showing the necessity of his humanity in his role as the high priest. But the high priest had to have human, he had to be a human representative. And one of the ways that to consider this is that the Jews revered the angels, and, and you go back to Hebrews chapter two and we learn something really astounding. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. In, in verse 16 of Hebrews two, look what it says here. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You say, why is that significant when we look at the high priesthood of Israel and how Jesus is the greater high priest? Because it's astounding that God designed a human being to be a representative for the people. Because some of the Jews and the way they revered angels, we saw back in chapter one and chapter two, how there's been times in the church where people have misunderstood and they have bought into the deception of worshiping angels. Some would think that the more appropriate mediator for men and their sins would be an angel representative, an angel to come to be the one that goes before between them and God. But that was not the plan of God. It was to be a human being. It was to be a human representative. I love this because it helps you to understand what we just read in Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 4, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So we see this high priest. I want you to look at this passage in Numbers chapter 16 and notice how this priest would act in relation to God on behalf of the people. Number 16 is a sobering passage. That is the passage that explains and illustrates and describes the sins of the company of Korah. Korah wanted to play the place of the high priest. And as a result, we see some destructive judgment that comes upon the people of Korah. Literally, the earth swallows them up because of this. And later in the chapter, it says in Numbers 16, And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar, lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation. Now notice this. He's speaking to Aaron. And he says, And make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. And then it says, so Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Now notice the next one. And he stood 
between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. You jump in the middle of that context, one thing that becomes apparent is that the people of Israel needed a human representative to act as a mediator and to act as one to stand in between. And we say, wow, when we think about from shadow to substance, we begin to see how the book of Hebrews is constantly showing us that Jesus Christ is a better way. That Jesus Christ is the mediator. That Jesus Christ is the human representative. You see, what he's doing is he's saying, look, let me go back and explain to you all the qualifications of the Old Testament high priest and let me just show you one more time how Jesus is greater and how Jesus is supreme. Numbers demonstrates this role of the human representative. And, and, and so we see not only that he had to be a man, but he was called to be sympathetic. He was called to be sympathetic. This high priest was not just to play a part in his office and in his duties. He actually was to show a gentleness to the people. And we see that in verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now I wanna just quickly touch on this because this is a long passage and I went too long on this in the first hour. Okay, so what's going on? He can deal gently. The word gently is different than what we, way we think of describing Jesus when, he, when it says he's gentle and lowly and you can find rest for your souls. It's a different word. It, it speaks of the middle of two extremes. It speaks of that this priest needed to have the right attitude and the right view and angle in the way he saw the people that he ministered to. And here in verse two, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. It's the idea that because he was a sinner, he had a better understanding of the people that he was offering sacrifices for. I tell you, you know, this is fascinating because you get the sense of, of how God designed this. God designed the man not to act upon the people, looking at them with bitterness and harshness, but he saw himself in their shoes. Make sense? Because this priest was a man and this priest dealt with his own sin. I'll tell you, there's a fascinating angle here when you think about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus gives the Beatitudes and we know the Beatitudes and maybe... You can remember two or three or four, but you start out with verse three in Matthew five, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he goes on, blessed are those who mourn. And then quickly thereafter, blessed are the merciful. And here's the idea. Jesus is describing to people that it's not until you see your own self in need of a savior that you're ever in a position to show mercy. You see, if you are in this room today and you've come to a place of spiritual bankruptcy where you go, I can't, I'm done with works-based religion, I'm weary, it doesn't work, it doesn't save, I'm incapable of earning my way to God, and you cry out to God and you receive from him freedom, you now are in a place to show empathy like never before. Because when people are suffering, are you going to look at them and say, get yourself together? You need to be a better person. What are you going to do? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are then in a place to show mercy because they now with empathy see themselves in the sins of others. That was the goal. The goal was that the priest would show gentleness and he would look at the ignorant, those that didn't know better, those that were outside of the right knowledge. Wayward speaks of those that all we like sheep have gone astray. That's the word. We've gone astray from the ways of God. We, and so he, he has compassion, but he takes it seriously. But there's a median in his attitude that hits the standard that, that, that God's calling. This is God's intent. We know from even in the time of Jesus that the high priest got so far away from God's intent. 
It became something you almost bought yourself into. But this was not the intention. God had an intention that the man was sympathetic, that he had compassion. And it says he himself is beset with weakness. It's literally the idea that I'm surrounded with weakness. And thus that I'm surrounded with weakness, I'm not in a position now to come against you with bitterness or harshness. That was the intention of his role. Um, we, we come on down here and we get into the next design I think is listed is the, the design was to be not only a man called to be sympathetic, but also to offer or he offers up sacrifices. Verse three, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And if you go back to the very beginning here, let's go back to chapter five, verse one. What do we see? We see uh, at the very end of the verse to offer what? Gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we see verse one, he's offering gifts and sacrifices. Verse three, he's offering sacrifices. So he's a human representative. He's called to be sympathetic in the way he administers his role. But what is his role? His role is primarily gifts and sacrifices. When we think of the high priest, if we were gonna think about the most critical day of the year, it would have been known as the day of atonement. The day of atonement where the high priest had access to go into the holy of holies. Last week we saw that Jesus passed through the heavens and what was that a symbol of? It was like the, the Old Testament high priest passed through the tabernacle passed into the Holy of Holies. Jesus passed through the heavens, the first, second, third heaven. And so we see this here. He's offering up sacrifices, but notice something, and it will begin to whet your appetite for what's coming. What's the problem here? This man's not only weak, the high priest of the Old Testament, but this man's a sinner. He's a sinner. He understands weakness. Because he's a sinner, what does he have to do? He has to offer up sacrifices for himself. Verse three again, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. He's weak. He has weaknesses. Therefore, he has to bring a sacrifice. Look, there's so many Old Testament passages. Look at Leviticus 9. Verse seven, then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Does that make sense? If you're gonna play the role of a high priest and you're the one who is literally the mediator, you can't offer up for the sins of the people if your own sin hasn't been atoned for. And thus, the author of Hebrews alludes to this dual role. He has to offer for himself and for the people. You see it in Leviticus 16. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Now, I'm jumping ahead but I want you to begin to see like a little bit of foreshadowing where he's going in verse five. Go back to chapter one of Hebrews. And again, read with me like we did last week in verse three. And when we look at verse three, this is exciting because it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now notice the next phrase. After making purification for sins. He what? He sat down. If there's one thing about the reality of a high priest in the Old Testament is that he is a busy man. He's a busy man and there's never an opportunity to sit down after sacrifices. And again, you say, why not? Why, why, why? Because he's a sinful man, because there's sinful people that he is acting as a representative of. And the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. There has to be constant sacrifices. 
But what do we see with the Lord Jesus Christ is that he made purification for sin, unlike the Old Testament earthly man that was not the God man. He didn't have to make atonement for himself. He offered up purification for sinners. And once that was accomplished, he sat down. It's a greater priesthood. And, and so their offering of sacrifices, I was reading about verse one mentions gifts and sacrifices. It's just the idea that it seems to be a general description of all the designated offerings, one man says. It's reserved for the priest. And it is for sins. For sins, like not only of himself, but of the people. Dr. Ironside says it like this. The primary function of the Old Testament priest was to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Sin disturbs the relationship which should exist between man and God and puts up a barrier between them. And the sacrifice was meant to restore that relationship and remove that barrier. And that's what's happening here with the fourth one. He had to be a man, called to be sympathetic, offers up sacrifices, but fourthly, divinely appointed. This may seem obvious, but it's significant because we see examples in the Old Testament of people trying to act in the role of the priest, and they're not called to do that. Uh, look at verse four. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The one thing you begin to discover in the Old Testament is that God appointed the high priest. One of the things to consider here is that... Uh, God defines the way he is to be worshiped and God defines the way that he is to be approached. This comes in complete contrast with the idea of pluralism and progressivism. Progressivism is this cancer that will come into the church at times and it begins to make people think that their feelings and their perspective changes the way that they approach God. But the problem is, is the reason why the scripture has been revealed is that God sets the way, God establishes the parameters, God orchestrates the way it's to be done. He's the one that defi defines the mediator, not man. Uh, today, one of the questions to ask yourself is, have you received the mediator that God has given in Jesus Christ. You see, because there was major consequences when people would not respond appropriately. One of the passages I've already looked at with you is Numbers 16. Numbers 16 is an incredible reminder that God has established his will according to his decree and according to his plan. And when we violate that plan, there's drastic consequences. I, you know, notice this. Numbers 3 says, these are, the son, these are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priest, whom he ordained to serve as priest. I heard one preacher say it this way. I thought it was humorous. You know, we got job fairs today. Amazing how smart our young people are. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 21. Now they know what they want to do when they're like 12. It's amazing. I applaud them. I think it's great. But you don't go to a job fair and see a booth in Israel for high priest. You don't say, you know what? I got marketing over there. That sounds cool. Got a little IT going on. Help out the priest with the IT problems. Um, but you know what? I think I want to be a high priest. I'm going for it. I'm going to do this. Let's make it happen. The problem is that's not the way it works. And it goes against the way men think, doesn't it? We have a way of approaching God that says that's not fair. Have you ever noticed that? We are created beings and we voice our complaints back to the creator of what we do not like with how he does things. It's the essence of arrogance, the essence of pride. God didn't ask God didn't say, I need humble men. God didn't say, I need the best of the best. God said, this is how it's gonna be done. And this is the mediator. And this is the human representative that I've established. And it happened to be through Aaron. And, and when, when, when the people violate that, we see it in number 16. Go with me to number 16. I wanna read you one passage. Number 16 
is the sins of Korah. And if you ever doubt that what I just said is true, look at that. It's really compelling because it shows us that when we go outside of the will of God, there's drastic problems. Verse 40, the sons of Korah, they thought they could offer up the incense. They thought they could do it. They were upset that Aaron was gonna strong arm them, that Aaron was gonna be over them. They misunderstood the whole thing. Number 16, verse 40. It says, to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. This had to be an office that was given and established by God. That's the simple truth that we gain out of verse four as we look at this. Let's review the first four characteristics. Had to be a man called to be sympathetic. He offers up sacrifices, had to be divinely appointed. And now we come into verse five down through verse 10. Now, I want you to see something real quick because I struggled with how to say this in the first service. I'm going to do something a little different. I want to look with you at verse five, and I want us to talk about them. I'm going to leave them up there. I'm going to read a verse as an overview of this section, and I want us to evaluate quickly in a couple of minutes. Read verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Quotation out of Psalm 2, and what's his point? So also Christ did not just assume this role. What does that mean? Number four, divinely appointed. Jesus divinely was appointed as the ultimate high priest. Okay, go to verse 6. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll find out in a minute that Melchizedek is a king priest mentioned in Genesis, mentioned in Psalm. He's a mysterious figure that we'll look more at in Hebrews 7. The ultimate point being this, Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. And people would have said, wait a minute, he's not a descendant of Aaron. And immediately the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. He comes from the line of the king priest, Melchizedek. His line is greater than even that of Aaron's. Verse seven, in the days of his flesh, wait a minute, the days of his flesh, what does that mean? The days of his flesh, John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what's that speaking of? The incarnation. And what does it mean to us? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is sinless. Verse eight speaks about the fact, or verse seven speaks about the fact that he is number two. He is called to be sympathetic and he had to be a man, number one. You see that? He was the human representative, but he was sympathetic to our weakness you see that there in verse 7 and in verse 8. You come down to verse 9. Look what he says. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. How did he become the source of eternal salvation? Through the sacrifice of his life. Number three. So what I want you to see is, is verses 5 through 10, not in the same order, cover all four of the requirements of the earthly high priest. Make sense? That's what he's doing. He's showing him he's better. He's showing him he meets all the requirements. Now, let's, now that we, we've covered that, I think it'll make more sense to you as we keep going. So verse five, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, I, what we have now is again, we, we have this declaration. We have a declaration, and it's a declaration by God the Father that reveals the nature of God the Son. And this is exciting because his argumentation is that you have to be divinely appointed. So also, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We looked at that back in chapter one. 
It seems to be a coronation after Jesus had died, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, and there it is exaltation, and there it is the coronation of what he had accomplished. It was a declaration statement. And what do we see by that? We, We see a lot, but one of the things that we find here is we find that this declaration shows his special status seen from God's own declaration. So when we look at this quotation in verse five that comes out of Psalm two, it reveals the fact that Jesus checks off the box for verse four, that it had to be divinely appointed. And we also see that this declaration here is of the father's appointment of the son, that that he had special status. That's his point there. We, we keep going here and we move into verse six. When we get into verse six, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you're thinking, what in the world? Now just hang in there. This is a really tough one, okay? We're gonna get into this in Hebrews seven, but all we're trying to do right now is just get it, the idea that would come across. We're not going to get really in depth here. Who is Melchizedek? What's going on? We're going to cover that later. But I want you to see the passages where we see him mentioned. One is found in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a really important passage to the author of Hebrews. Have you noticed that? It's come up a lot. Huge. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Now look at the next verse. Here we go. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Psalm 110 is a passage hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And already God is establishing that Messiah would stake his claim as the high priest, not through the line of Aaron, but through a king priest named Melchizedek. And you say, where else is this person mentioned? Well, it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, around the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you go to Genesis 14 and verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen. Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And you go on down a couple more verses here. And what do you see in the next verse? You see here in verse 19, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Isn't that mysterious? We hear about this king priest back here in Genesis 14. We see this king priest spoken of in Psalm 110. As I was looking at this, I I, I was looking, I felt like a lot of you do looking at me right now. I I feel your pain. I sympathize. But you know what? Um, I want to read to you something I got in a commentary. Melchizedek is clearly a key word in this central section. And despite his prominent place in this letter, He was a very mysterious priest king who met Abraham when he returned from defeating the confederation of kings from the north. In the Genesis account, he's merely called king of Salem and priest of the most high God. Melchizedek is discussed in greater detail in Hebrews chapter seven. And as Dr. Ironside writes, it is enough. Now here it is. It is enough to point out here that Melchizedek was recognized as priest of the Most High God centuries before the Levitical priesthood came into existence. You get that? He was a priest before the priest. 
the Levitical priesthood and the legal covenant with which it was connected had their place until the son, speaking of Jesus, who was to fulfill Melchizedek's type to come. What he's doing here is, and again, we'll look at it more later. All he's doing is he's saying, look, the earthly priests were appointed by God. Jesus has a declaration from the Father, and Jesus comes out of the line of this earthly king priest mentioned in, or out of this king priest mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. We keep moving here. You're doing good. This is, this is tough, so I'm proud of you for hanging in there. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh... No, one's, no one can go to lunch until they tell me more about Melchizedek. Y'all better start studying. All right, verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. I love this. Okay, what does it take? What is God's heart for the earthly priest? Is God's heart, even in the Old Testament, for the earthly priest not to relate to the people? No. His heart is, is that he would be gentle because he understands his ignorance and his own waywardness. But how much greater the Lord Jesus Christ who sympathizes us. And how do we know that he sympathizes with us in our weakness? Because verse seven, look at the opening phrase, in the days of his flesh. What does that do? It immediately reminds the, the people of the book of Hebrews Wait a minute, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he became a man. He became a man. He came to earth. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Philippians 2 says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The implication seems to be here. He's saying, look, notice how sympathetic the Lord Jesus Christ was. He's the son of God. Notice back in chapter one, he is deity. But what did he do? He humbled himself. He was willing to become a man, the God-man. He was willing to put himself through suffering, trial, and struggle. He was willing to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was willing in tears to depend on his father. He was willing to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. Let me ask you something. Do you think this ministers to people that are hurting that are scared of their property being plundered, that are scared of possibly becoming martyrs, to be encouraged to look to the Lord Jesus Christ because in their struggle, they can be assured of something. They can be assured that the eternal high priest understands them. See what he's doing here? I wonder what you're going through today. I wonder what you would be nervous to share with anybody else in here. But if you were real right now, and I said, hey, can somebody come up here and share with me your temptation to not keep going right now? I wonder what you would say. People might come up and you'd be shocked. Isn't that the way it is sometimes? The people that start opening up and revealing what's really going on in their heart. And you're like, I never knew. I didn't know that was going on. I didn't know that person faced that. I didn't know what was happening there. And all of a sudden, he's showing them, he's saying, look, you want to go back to the old way? You want to go back to an old system? Understand, the earthly priests were mediators, but King Jesus far supersedes all earthly priests. And it shows them here his, his agony. It shows them here his dependence on the Father. It shows them his understanding of their suffering. It shows them his understanding of their pain. He can identify. And he was heard because of his reverence. And the idea is that even as he asked, is there another way? What was his objective as the incarnated son of God? His objective was not my will, but yours be done. And his objective was no matter what the cost, Reverent submission to his father was the plan. And God heard him. We, we keep moving here, and, and it just keeps getting better and better. I like what Dave Guzik says. If Jesus asked 
that the cup be taken away from him and the cup was not taken away, how can it be said that he was heard? Because his prayer was not to escape his father's will, but to accept it. And that prayer was definitely heard. Go to verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What in the world does that mean? And how awe-inspiring is it to consider the Son of God learning obedience? I I like this. I I found this in one commentary. He discovered in personal experience what obedience and obedience that involves suffering really means. Only by coming to share our human condition could the Son of God know this experience. And aren't you thankful today that he's unlike our earthly high priests that we read about in the Old Testament that were beset with weaknesses? Jesus, the perfect Son of God, passed this test perfectly. He passed it perfectly. He passed it perfectly. And he learned obedience through the things he suffered. I was asking the first group, how many of you are tempted to think that suffering always means that God has turned his back on you? What can we learn today about the nature of suffering? Again, is there times where suffering is nothing more than the consequences of our sin? Of course. But how many times within our lives? But isn't, aren't you thankful that even in those times, the mercy of God enables you to endure your own consequences to your own sin? That God uses it redemptively and sanctifying in your life to grow you in the faith? But how many times are you going through life and you're seeking to follow God and suffering comes upon you and you're thinking, what, God? What has happened? And this is why I could get excited. I've done it too many times. But this is why the the deception and the heresy of the prosperity gospel goes against everything in the word of God. Because here, the teachers of the prosperity gospel wouldn't even understand how to understand that he learned obedience through the things he suffered and that it would become a pattern for his children in their pain. I wonder what it had done to those Christians in Italy that were threatened with so many persecutions to realize that God was calling them to be obedient and to receive the good news with belief in the midst of their sufferings, to be reminded that their great high priest went through sufferings, understanding them, but he was obedient. And now that high priest lived within them to enable them to keep going. He sympathizes. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Philippians says, I love this. We forget this passage. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. That's when we go, oh, thank you, Lord, for giving me the grace of faith. But we often don't say it on the next part but also suffer for his sake. We don't normally cry out, oh dear God, thank you for giving me this gift of suffering. (laughs) What do we wanna do? God's abandoned me. He's turned his back on me. But what do we have? We have a great high priest who teaches us what the nature of true suffering represents. We We go on here and we see in verse nine, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this doesn't mean that he wasn't perfect, but now he became perfect. The word perfect in the Greek, this word for the little Greek I know, teleos, it means to reach the goal, to reach the intended goal. What what it's speaking of is this. As a result of the incarnated son of God's perfect obedience, he now was perfectly equipped to fulfill his saving mission. Make sense? Perfectly equipped to fulfill his saving mission. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. This morning, I I pray that everyone in this room is a Christian. I pray that everybody in here has experienced that Jesus is the eternal source of salvation. But some of you may not be Christians. 
You may have like thought about this. You may have even considered it, but I want you to understand something. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. God has appointed him as the mediator. And this morning, understand, it's similar to Korah. There's some differences in the story, but basically when Korah rejected God's purpose of mediation and God's design, they faced the judgment of God. And understand today, Understand that this is an invitation to you. This is the author of Hebrews is calling out to you today, whether you're 14, 12, 10, 46, 57, or 79, or higher. I covered it all. Or younger. He's calling out to you to see that Jesus is greater. He's worthy of your worship. He's the great high priest. He's the great high priest. There's consequences for not believing And what God has laid out here, he being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Why? Because remember John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Old Testament priest would offer up sacrifices. Jesus offered up the sacrifice of himself, of himself. And now he became the source to all who obey him. Now, isn't that interesting? Typically, we would think there that we would see the word believe to all who believe him. But it says to all who obey him. Now, let's chew on this. What is the relationship between belief and obedience? Uh, You know, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey me. You know, when we look at uh, some other passages, There's many to look at. We see that faith is referred to as the obedience unto faith. Romans 1, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the what? Obedience of faith. Literally, you could say that entrance into the kingdom of God, when one believes on Jesus, when a kid, an old person, whatever, when they trust and depend on Jesus, it literally is a picture of obedience of the faith. They're believing on the gospel. They're obeying. One of the commands that's given in the earthly ministry of Jesus is repent. Repent. How do you obey that command? You obey that command by obedience of faith, by looking unto Christ. Another passage that I think it helps us explain this is 2 Thessalonians, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. John 3 speaks of belief contrasted with those who do not obey. Um, We see that John 3 is right here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. True belief will manifest in the work of the Spirit in, 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 in obedience. First Peter explains how according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, how are we going to obey the gospel? We need the enablement of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And here is what is he doing? He's calling them to believe. This morning, how do we leave from here? God's design for the high priest had to be a man called to be sympathetic offers up sacrifices, divinely appointed. But how do we see Christ superior this morning? He's the God-man representative. He's our sympathetic high priest. He offered up the ultimate sacrifice. He's divinely appointed by his father. I've got three application points for this morning as we leave quickly. In your endurance and in your perseverance, what are you facing? How do you endure? You look to Jesus. Remember, this is so tightly connected to what we looked at last week. It flows right into it. Number two, just as Christ called out and was heard by the Father, we can boldly come to the throne of grace. You realize that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? It seems to picture there. And what does he do? 
in tears and supplications. He cries out. The father hears him. And one of the encouragements, I really believe in the context that's happening here, is he's reminding us, we have a great high priest. Let us come now with confidence to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace in help in time of need, that, that he's there for us. What are you facing today? What are you going through? Take comfort today that whatever you're facing, Jesus understands you. I told you last week, that's one of the missing pieces often in my Christian journey. I lose sight of the fact that God's just not sovereign and God's not just aware and he's holy, but that Jesus identifies with me, that he understands what I'm going through. Thirdly, Christ went through suffering obediently. As we are overwhelmed, he can enable us to be obedient in our suffering. Aren't you thankful? I don't know about you, but uh, Jesus passed every test, but how many times in your life can you say that instead of obedience in the midst of suffering, you were filled with disbelief, doubt, frustration, anger? But this morning, the, the, the answer's not look to yourself, be motivated. Try a little harder. Be a better Christian. What's the motivation? Look to the great high priest. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And who is he? He's the one that learned obedience through that which he suffered. So when I am suffering and I'm going through pain and I'm going through heartache, who understands me? Jesus. And who's the only one that can enable me to come out on the opposite end of suffering with obedience? The Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, this morning, are you receiving or are you rejecting God's appointed mediator? This morning, there's no middle ground. You either receive him and trust him or you turn away from him in unbelief. I pray today that your heart would be thrilled that there was one who came to be your mediator. There was one to come to take your place. I tell you, I, I, we talked about this a lot and I'm about done. The weariness of religion will wear you out. It'll wear you out. It'll spit you out. It'll, it'll wear you down. You can't do enough. You can't make it happen. You're always in constant fear. But the freedom comes when we look to the Lord Jesus as our great high priest who accomplished for us what we could never accomplish. And today I pray our hope and our trust is in him. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, God, as we leave, Lord, that these words would just grab our hearts. Oh, God, I pray that we would be a people that walk obediently through suffering as a result of your grace. And oh God, I pray that we would learn how to walk obediently in our failures to run to you, to run to you to find mercy and grace. Oh Lord, I pray that this would change our life. I pray that reflection on the work and person of Jesus would radically change us and Lord would lead us to worship you and know you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you stand with